And I remember just flying in that night as the Chinook descended. And then as soon as we jumped out, I just remember seeing from my corner of my eye in the woods, we had Army Special Forces taking positions yeah. to protect us. I'm like, oh my God, what? Three weeks ago, I was staying at the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan, <laughs> right? And and now I'm on a 7,200 foot top of a mountain. Like, what is going on? A civilian job and serving our country in the United States Army Reserves with training deployments each year, ranging anywhere from weeks to months. In other words, going back to civilian life. No long-term commitment, though the Navy has come to rely on those with non-military careers to help staff its missions. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is Navy Reserve Lieutenant Commander Tim Sanchez. Tim is currently a Senior Director at Roberts and Ryan Investments. Prior to that, he was the Director of Global Listings at the New York Stock Exchange. Also, for the past 20 years, he's been a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy Reserves. Since 9-11, Tim has been recalled to active duty three times and deployed to Kuwait, Afghanistan, and Bahrain. Today, he's going to talk about the challenges of serving in the reserves and the shocking things he discovered while being deployed as a Supply Corps officer in Afghanistan in 2012. We're honored to welcome Navy Reserve Lieutenant Commander Tim Sanchez as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. I continue to serve in the Navy Reserve as a, the rank of Lieutenant Commander. Today? Yeah. Still wow. today. Yeah. Wow. Still still uh, doing my monthly duty and Fantastic. My two or three weeks a year active duty. But uh, so 9-11, Ralph, was really the catalyst that made me want to do something. And so when I woke up and saw what was taking place, I mean, I just remember getting so emotional, like a lot of Americans and angry and, and sad. And then I saw the buildings collapse. And I, I remember I, I told my wife at the time, I'm like, I, I got to do something. I said, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I'm just not going to sit, sit back. Like this is too close to home. I want to do something. And, you know, go back even further. When I was a freshman in college, I, I wanted to join the U S army ROTC program. Mm-hmm. My parents were dead set against it. Um, but I wanted to join as an officer because I had a lot of family members that have served, but they were, none of them went to college and they all served in the enlisted ranks. No, nothing wrong with that. Right. You know, it's honorable service, but I just wanted to do something different. Like I want to be an officer. So, so that didn't work out my freshman year, but it always been in the back of my mind. Like I wanted to serve. And then when nine 11 occurred, that was it. So then I approached the various branches and I, and I was very adamant that I wanted to seek out an officer's commission, but not necessarily walk away from my career. So so that's what I was looking for, Ralph. I wanted to serve as an officer. The Navy came back and given my business background and the fact that I had an MBA, they said, look, you would be great. We can give you a direct commission. Um, we'll put you into the logistics supply program. 
and I, and I took it. So I, I never did. I was never a prior active duty officer. It was right. always in the reserves, but it allowed me to continue to support my family, pursue my civilian career, but at the same time build a career in the Navy. So, yeah. you know, in 2006, I volunteered for my first deployment. I uh, went out to Kuwait, spent a little time in Iraq, but mostly Kuwait in more of a support role. Um, and then and then in 2012, I sat down with my wife at the time and I said, you know, I really feel like I feel guilty. I said, there are a lot of my friends that are going out on multiple tours and here I am making a pretty good living, comfortable back home. Uh, I want to do something again. And, and she was on board. To her yeah. credit, she never stopped me, never never created an undue burden or, or encouraged me not to go. She was very supportive. So I, I went to the detailing office and I said, look, I want to volunteer again, but I want to do something that's going to be meaningful. I don't want to be in a support role. Like I want to do something that I can look back on later in life and be proud of. And they said, great, Afghanistan. I said, <laughs> all right, well, I'll do it. But then they told me, they said, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to be at uh, at uh, Bagram Air Base. It's a massive facility. They call it a FOB, Forward Operating Base. Mm-hmm. And there's 50,000 people that live there. It's like a city. You'll be safe. You'll never have to leave. There'll be an occasional mortar you know, attack, but it never, ever hits anybody and you'll you'll be fine. So. So that was that. I was working for the New York Stock Exchange at the time, and uh, had in New York, two well, two offices, one in New York. I worked out of a booth on the floor, and then I worked out of the Menlo Park office in the Bay Area mm-hmm. in global listings. So I worked for the exchange itself, and my role was to basically uh, it was twofold: manage the relationships with the. C-suite executives of West Coast listed companies. So I got to hobnob with a lot of important people throughout my career at the exchange. And then I would also go after the private companies that were going to go public and persuade them to list on the New York Stock Exchange as opposed to NASDAQ. So Mm -hmm. it was a very comfy, high visibility position, um, paid well, uh, had a good, comfortable life. But I informed the exchange and the CEO of the time, Duncan Niederauer, to his credit, uh, he was an, probably the biggest supporter of veterans on Wall Street. Fantastic. Yeah, he was a huge supporter. So he was very supportive of, of my pending deployment. But I still had no idea what I was going to do. Right. All I knew was right. it was going to be Afghanistan. Yeah. So the day came, I said my goodbyes, I packed my gear and left my wife and kids and was sent to Fort Jackson because at the time, if you were going into a combat environment, the Navy would send their enlisted sailors and officers to Fort Jackson and the Army would own you for 19 days <laughs> and they taught you everything you need to know. Well, that's what they told us. Right. The reality is you're not going to learn a lot in 19 days. Right. But it was the Army who trained us and... Um, up until our flyout date, I had no idea what I was going to be doing. Wow. It was kept a secret. And then a few hours before we left, I was told, oh, your orders were modified. You're going to camp integrity in Afghanistan. So, of yeah. course, I'm looking where on my phone. Where in the hell is Camp Integrity? <laughs> I couldn't find anything. The only thing I could find was Camp Integrity Blackwater Academy. And I'm like, oh, shit. 
shoot, this yeah, sounds sketchy. This like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. this isn't what I signed up for. So we fly out. You know, it was like a 24-hour trip. They took us from South Carolina to Georgia to I don't know where in Europe. And finally, we arrive in Kyrgyzstan for a layover for three days at an Air Force base there. And then we flew into Kandahar. I eventually get to Kabul. And um, I'm greeted by four of my now brothers for life who were there to pick me up at the airport. And all I remember was they said, OK, here's your ammo, lock and load. If something goes down, you're responsible for this quad of the of the vehicle. You're going to get out. We're going to set a perimeter. This is our crash bag. If somebody gets hurt, this is the medical bag. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait what's going on? Yeah, what am I? Yeah. <laughs> what no, am I doing here? So within minutes we're outside the wire in a convoy and i'm like oh my god this is not what <laughs> i had in mind so i show up at camp integrity and long story short i was attached to sagitif a because you know the military loves acronyms special operations joint task force afghanistan it's a fancy name for the special ops command wow. in afghanistan yeah led by a two-star and so that was where the United States orchestrated and executed their campaign involving our U.S. Special Forces, Army Special Forces, or Navy SEALs. So it was fascinating. You know, just a fascinating. It was a full, small four-acre compound. We had other government agencies working there, and um, and I I was able to get a firsthand look at at what our our best and brightest do within the soft community. And it was fascinating. So that was my journey to to Afghanistan. I just remember being overcome with fear. Day one, I wasn't going to admit it to anybody. And right. I don't think anybody ever does. But I, I was, I was it's scared. a strange place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And Camp Integrity, it turns out, is was what exactly? So Camp Integrity was what we like to describe as a secret squirrel compound. There are some compounds... Uh, you know, we could talk about it now because we're no longer in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, there are certain compounds that uh, not all of the military has access to. Right. These are, you know, the most secret um, bases within a base where our special forces, special operations conduct their piece of the war. So Camp Integrity was a camp that was actually leased by the Department of Defense from a company at the time called Academy which was formerly Blackwater. And uh, so when I figured that out, I thought this, this is strange. Wait, like, yeah, what the hell's going on? Why here? can't we be on a regular base? You know? Yeah. So was uh, it part of a bigger base? No, it was se completely separate. No, it was off of uh, there's this road on the north side of Kabul International, Kaya. Um, and we were on the outskirts of Kabul International in a standalone compound. It was a, 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 a literal square. I think it was maybe two acres um, surrounded by these very high walls. Compared to other bases, the facilities and the accommodations were really nice. I'm not going to lie. The, the rooms that we lived in were, were incredible. Uh, but it was like a, a small little prison compound and surrounded by guard towers but the guards weren't our people they were afghan contractors 
which was terrifying. Of course. Because you were a sitting duck whenever you walked around. You know, you don't know these people. You yeah. don't know them. And in fact, after I left, it turns out that they did a biometric scrub of the phones and whatnot. And uh, some of the guards, the, the head guard was communicating with the Taliban and feeding them a lot of critical, sensitive information about the movement of the 200 or so of us that lived inside that camp. Wow. And, uh, and sure enough, I think it was within 30 days after I ended up leaving Afghanistan, the camp was hit. Tim landed in Afghanistan in 2012 at the height of the surge in U.S. forces ordered by President Barack Obama. Within weeks, he went from an executive on Wall Street to working as a supply officer on a secret base in Afghanistan. The transition was abrupt in a number of ways. He went from the one week of training he received every month as a Navy reservist to being deployed in an active war zone. Because of the dramatic uptick in U.S. troops on the ground, his services were needed. According to the Navy, and I quote, as a reservist, there is no formula for determining who will deploy or when, where, or for how long. It comes down to what occupational specialties and operational units are needed at any given time, and who is best qualified and ready to serve those needs, end quote. When members of the Navy Reserve get deployed, they are considered to be on active duty and earn active duty pay and benefits. Typically, Navy Reservists are called up every five years for a year. For someone like Tim, who worked on Wall Street, the money he was making as a reservist didn't come close to paying the taxes on his civilian salary. But like many reservists in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, and Marines, he wasn't doing it for the money. And the biggest threat was blue on green or green on blue, uh, you know, attacks where yeah. you're walking right next to an Afghan soldier and he just decides at that moment that he's going to take out as many people as he can because yeah. the Taliban have already paid his family off. And so he knows his family's set for life and he's going to be a martyr. So he's going to turn his AK on the closest soldiers next to him and, and take them out as he goes out. And that happened. Yeah. There were a lot of those a incidents. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. A lot of them were reported and I'm sure a lot more weren't reported. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was an eye opener from, from day one. And then within three days after I was able to get my bearings and adjust at the time, I was working, you know, in the military, you have the numbered departments, right? You know, you're, and it was a joint. So J1 through J8, J9. I was in J4, the logistics cell. And I remember the colonel who was ahead in charge of J4, he said, oh, Sanchez, you're going to be working closely with General Bulldog. And he's, he's heading up the ALP effort in Afghanistan. I'm like, well, what is that? I said, I, don't, don't worry about it. You'll get up to speed. You're, you're going to, you know, help out with logistics. So I quickly learned that ALP stood for Afghan local police. And this was an initiative started by general Don Bulldog. And his, his idea was you can't rely on the Afghan national army to govern Afghanistan. Because Afghanistan is a tribal land. They Very don't respect yes. nation state construct, right? So 
it's all about the tribe that you belong to. The right. loyalty is with the tribe, not right. to borders or to a flag or an army or a constitution. And so the, the, the 300,000 troops at the Afghan National Army, a lot of them were pulled from the north, Kabul area, from the heavy uh, Pashtun areas. And it wasn't working because you can't put them into the other parts of the country where they're not part of the tribe. So the ALP was the solution. It's where we would go in and find local villagers with the blessing of the elders, draft them into the Afghan local police, which essentially was a militia, and they would be the first line of defense against al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and they would guard their village and province. But we would equip them. We would outfit them, equip them, arm them. But it was a project that fell into the lap of special operations. Hmm. So Army Special Forces and Navy SEALs were responsible for going around the country to these villages and recruiting these young men and then training them. And they had the highest casualty rate. These guys were getting mowed down left and right. I bet. Yeah. I mean, just they were the first line of defense. But Ralph, within three days, I was on a Black Hawk, Chinook helicopter, C-130 flying around to all. I had seen all four corners of Afghanistan in my first two weeks. Wow. Which was unheard of yeah. for a reservist especially someone who's not a combat guy. Right. But here we were being dropped into these small bases. Uh, I remember one was perched on the side of a mountain, the 7,200-foot elevation overlooking the Pakistani border. <laughs> and, I, and I remember just flying in that night as the Chinook descended and the floodlight came on. And we had like two minutes to unload 20 people. The helicopter kept hovering. And then as soon as we jumped out, I just remember seeing from my corner of my eye in the woods, we had Army Special Forces taking positions yeah. to protect us. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. What? Three weeks ago, I was staying at the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan, <laughs> right? And and now I'm on a 7,200-foot yeah. top of a mountain. Yeah. Like, what is going on? So, yeah, it was just... It was fascinating. So whenever we would travel around to these bases, you know, we made sure that the ALP uniforms would show up. We would give these guys some cash to pay for food. You know, this was their first paycheck. And then we would have these containers that would show up with the weapons. You know, container, 20, 40-foot containers full of AK-47s and PKMs with all of the ammo. And I was responsible for coordinating this. I mean, yeah. I was essentially an arms dealer. And it was just, it was surreal. And where were the arms coming from? You know, that's a good question. To this day, I'm not really sure. I yeah. didn't ask the question. Um, all but I they know were always AKs and always PKMs. AKs. Always AKs and PKMs. Those were the weapons that we armed the Afghan local police with. Huh. By the thousands. I mean, we would pop these containers open and, I mean, you walk in and, it was just a treasure trove of weapons and ammo. And wow. these containers would and, show up in these small villages. And did, did this Afghan national police have a command structure? They did. So there was a general in Kabul who was the head of this command structure. Um, and then he had other colonels around the country that were handpicked to head up the provincial command 
and then it kind of fell down to the local village level. But it was just so corrupt. I mean, we would go into some of these villages and I, I can remember showing up somewhere out by Herat or Farah in the southwest corner of Afghanistan near the Iranian border. And mm-hmm. I remember the local villagers set up this meeting. We had these elders show up and the colonel who was like the man showed up late with his entourage, you know, three white Toyota trucks roll up into the compound and the guy's high as a kite. I mean, he was on that hash, you know, just, and in that particular situation, like a week later, all of the weapons and ammo we gave them, we, cause we're able to trace the shells. And so during one skirmish, uh, it turns out the Taliban were using the weapons that we gave them. Right. Wow. So that was one thing about Afghanistan. There's no, it's not like a, one thing I could say about the Iraqi insurgency, mm-hmm. it was religious based and they were devout. I'm not saying I agree with yeah, their beliefs, but you could, you could tell people were dedicated to one side or the other. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was, yeah. it was, it was a conviction they held based on their interpretation of the Quran in Afghanistan. No, that wasn't it's it's yeah. they'll sell their mother to the highest bidder. As a J4 staff officer assigned to the Special Operations Joint Task Force in Afghanistan, Tim helped manage the $180 million budget for arming and supplying the Afghan local police, or ALP, a force established by U.S. Army Special Forces in 2010 to serve as a locally-based village or community self-defense force. The ALP units were recruited from local communities of key areas where Afghan government influence or control was minimal. The recruits were selected and vetted by the village or community leaders and were also screened by the Afghan National Police and Ministry of Interior. In practice, however, Tim found a situation that was less than ideal and one that he found shocking, specifically the fact that ALP units were being armed with foreign-made weapons like AK-47s and PKM machine guns that would later end up in the hands of the enemy, the Taliban. What was even more disturbing to Tim was even though U.S. officers knew this was taking place, they let it continue. It sounds incredible, but we were, in effect, arming our enemy. I think the mistake we made as a country, and this is above my pay grade, but yeah. I'm entitled to have my own opinion. Sure. Uh, I think we went in with the American mindset thinking that people in that part of the world would see things or process things the way we do. And that that just wasn't the case. And anybody, yeah. if they're being completely honest with themselves and set aside their political label, if they've, if they've served in Afghanistan, I'm not talking about the big bases and never left, but if they actually have been outside of the wire and, and really spent time with locals, local mm-hmm. village elders and soldiers and the police and civilians, they would agree that Afghanistan, the experiment was never going to work. It was no. doomed to fail. Sure. It was just a matter of time. And the only thing that kept it alive for 20 years was the fact that we pumped the trillion dollars into the country. So of course, 
The decision makers out there didn't want to stop that gravy train, so they kept it alive. But they were never going to stand on their own two feet. And, you know, two weeks into my deployment there, I quickly figured that out. Like, this is a waste of time. Yeah, so here we are. We've got this whole program where we're training these people and we're giving them arms. And two weeks later, those arms are being aimed at us in battle, the arms that we gave them. So why don't we just, like, scrap the whole program and you know say hey guys this isn't working but instead i'm sure we continued it we because, absolutely continued it and yeah. and really all we were doing is we were creating and arming these militias that were only growing stronger in their determination to beat us and kick us out of their country you know and so Crazy. we gave them everything uniforms weapons ammo paid yeah. their salaries housed them we did all these things and we were just building up a force that was going to turn around and try to kill us so it it was it was just a losing proposition to begin with but you know that's that's what i did while i was out there and and i like to think that i and i will say that that I did meet a lot of great people, a lot of great men. Never met women, because you're not allowed to meet the women out there. But I, I worked with incredible local Afghan interpreters, some local colonels and majors who were really good people mm-hmm. who want the same thing that we want for our own families. Right. I want to live in peace. Right. I, I want to be able to provide for my family, and I yeah. want them to have a better life than than what I had. And you know, Afghanistan had been in war for forever. Like, yeah. They never really had a time of Since peace. Alexander the Great. Yeah. 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 You know, and that's all they've known. So, yeah. you know, uh, that that was what motivated me to keep me going every day while I was out there is okay, I, I I've encountered some good guys. Let's let's just try to right. see if we can help them. So you were surrounded by like special operators, right? How many of them did you feel understood that as well or was it a hundred percent a hundred percent i i found in my time and and i've i've served in three different locations in the middle east by far our special operators are the most intelligent well-read knowledgeable professional soldiers sailors that we have in the department of defense I mean, oh, they're amazing. Don't people. get me wrong. These yeah. are trigger pullers who probably killed a lot of bad guys in their time, but incredibly intellectual and they had a firm grasp of what they were up against. Yeah. And many of them, as we were smoking cigars late at night, you know, would share their honest opinions, but um, they were professional fighters. So they did their job, you know, and and it just reminds me of one other aspect of my experience that first month. You know, there are a lot, especially in the Navy, I can only speak for the Navy, um, but there are a lot of sailors, officers who want to be Navy SEALs, but there are only a few Navy SEALs that get to wear the trident. And the Navy SEALs, like the Army Special Forces community, uh, it's a fraternity, it's a special fraternity. In my first month, they did not accept me. And I kind of figured it out quickly. You know, I'm not one of them. I'm just going to be as real and transparent tell them about my life, my yep. family, what I do back home, and maybe they'll accept me, maybe they won't. But I'm not going to pretend I'm one of them. I'm right. not, even though they outfitted me with their gear, I knew that I was never going to be a Navy SEAL. And I yeah. think 
once they understood that I wasn't one of those guys. Yeah. You weren't trying to pretend that you were on the same level as them. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and that's when I was accepted by some of the army special forces and, and people that we travel around the country with. Um, and it was just an interesting observation that, you know, I respected their craft. I respected their dedication and their, their fraternity. And I wasn't trying to insert myself into that. So how long were you deployed in Afghanistan, Tim? I think I was out there a total of something like nine months. It was supposed to be an 11, 11 and a half month tour. Um, but I had an early, I had early relief coming in, an active duty major in the army. And from a career standpoint, it was more important to him to spend as much time as he could, whereas yeah. that wasn't my motivation. So I volunteered to, you know, put in a request to have my orders cut short if yeah. necessary, and it worked out great. And what was it like leaving Afghanistan and then coming back to the United States and rejoining your family too? You know, I I had been deployed once before. Yeah. And I had experienced that transition back to civilian life, and that was a challenge. But the Afghanistan transition I found was more difficult um, because there were things going on within me that I wasn't aware of. I thought, okay, well, this is fine. I'm going to go back home like last time. You know, I'm not out here shooting people, kicking down doors. But I realized that I, I had some some issues that. I didn't think were there, but sure enough, they were. So yeah. it was it was a difficult transition for me to go back because they don't really prepare you for that. You know, one one of the things that that um, I think a lot of Americans aren't aware of is that for with the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars, forty five percent of the forces used to prosecute those wars were. Um, weekend warriors. These were reservist yep. National Guard members. We're not active duty. This isn't our career. You know, we have a life in the civilian private sector. Right. We have, you know, families and whatnot, and we're plucked out and sent to support these wars, or worse, sent out to support these wars. But that wasn't our profession. Yeah. Like, we didn't eat, breathe, and sleep at 24-7. Right. So, when you're fighting wars and half of the ground forces are made up of these weekend warriors, what happens when you send them back home? The U.S. military reserves date back to the beginning of our nation, when militias fought in our War of Independence prior to the creation of a regular army. Today, our reserve components, which include Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, and Marines, have about 1.1 million members and comprise over 45% of our total U.S. military force. Reservists comprise more than a third of the approximately 775,000 U.S. soldiers who served in the Afghan war. They fulfilled all kinds of important jobs, including helicopter pilots, combat soldiers, doctors, nurses, and essential support officers like Tim. Since the launching of Operation Enduring Freedom in 2001, 2,461 U.S. service members died in the Afghan conflict and 20,000 were wounded. Somewhere between a quarter and a half of those were members of the Reserves and National Guard. 
I mean, sure, the VA talks to you for a couple of hours as yeah. part of your three-day sort of interim stop before you fly home, but that what's that going to do? Yeah. I mean, that's not going to help you. So you kind of have to figure it out on your own. Hence the high suicide rates and yeah. the PTSD collateral damage that we we still are facing years later. And it's not just the soldier or sailor going home. It's their family that's impacted. Of course. It's their loved ones around them. It's their community. Everybody's right. impacted and they don't realize why. You know. Well, and like for you to have experienced what you had experienced, you know, you had a career, you had your job, you're hearing about the war in Afghanistan and what's going on and why we're there. And it it's kind of all makes sense the way it ex, it's explained in the news. And then when you go there and when you see the way you did very firsthand how the war is being waged, right? Just to come back with those big questions in your head, uh, it, it must be very difficult because in a way it sort of undermines your whole you know, structure in terms of how you see the world and how you see your country, right? And your, your, your role in it, yeah. right? No, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you come back and people are very generous and supportive. And yeah. of course, everybody thanks you for your service and your family's proud of you and this and that. And, but you don't want to talk about it because you see what goes on out there and, and you come home and you're like, was it really worth it? You know, was it worth the price I paid leaving my family? It took a toll on my marriage. I'm now divorced. It was a long time marriage. I'm not saying that was the only reason for the yeah. marriage to break up, but you know, it certainly had a, a, a role and, my relationship with my kids, you know, and the anger and, and the, the attitude towards my, those, cause we, we, it's human nature. We hurt the people that are closest sure. to us. Can't help. I, I didn't know why, but I remember when I was out there, Ralph, I developed a friendship with the camp doctor. And I remember we were smoking cigars, of course, me and the <laughs> camp doctor, not exactly the healthiest thing to do, but uh, over cigars one night, I told him, I said, you know, Doc, I said, I don't know why, but whenever I come back from being outside the wire, man, I just want to take off my battle rattle, my, my kit, and I just want to sleep on my rack for like an hour or two. I just feel so exhausted. And it happens every time I leave. He goes, you know why that's taking place. I'm like, no, I have no idea. I'm yeah. being honest. Like, why? Yeah. He said, it's because your body is pumping so much adrenaline you're afraid even though you don't think you are. But there's a fear. Every time you step outside of the safety zone, your your head is on a swivel. You're looking Everything's out. Everything's alert. Yep. You know, every every trash heap on the side of the road could be hiding an IED. You don't know who's around you. And so your body is just on overdrive with adrenaline. And when you come back into the safe confine, it shuts down. And it's a drug. And that's why when I got home, I struggled physically. Yeah. Because there was no experience that could replace what I experienced going outside the wire back in Afghanistan. So I, right. would, I would catch myself watching these Discovery and other uh, TV programs that showed, you know, the 
IED patrols in Afghanistan, combat and anything military related in Iraq or Afghanistan, I would watch it because I would get like a little hit and it kept me going. And it also explains why we had a lot of soldiers who weren't told to go back to Iraq or Afghanistan. They often volunteered. Of course, of course. Because there was nothing back home stateside that could replace the adrenaline rush they experienced in combat. And so they needed that because they didn't know how to function in a peaceful environment. Yeah, that's why a lot of tier one operators, they... Their hardest time is coming back here when they have three months, you know, downtime. Right. And they find themselves, yeah, jumping out of planes and riding motorcycles and, you know, doing, getting drunk and doing crazy stuff. But then they jump at the first opportunity to go back. Exactly. Right. Exactly. They may even lie to their family that, oh, I was tapped to go back. I don't want to. But the reality is they probably volunteered, you know, so that's, that's the dynamic that, existed for me and i can only imagine those that were involved with the even more intense combat what they had to experience you know but that's yeah. not discussed you don't really and when you're in a support role or if you're not a trigger puller you almost feel ashamed to talk about it because you know that you've served with people that have seen far worse or experienced far right. worse so like who am i to complain or so you, you keep it quiet According to a study by the RAND Corporation published in 2013, over 12% of reservists returning from the war in Afghanistan have reported suffering from PTSD. This doesn't include the many others who never seek treatment. Symptoms include re-experiencing the traumatic event, often in the form of nightmares, hypervigilance, easily being startled, negative emotions and thoughts, including self-blame, and feeling detached from others and their surroundings. What feeds this process and makes recovery difficult is that one of the primary symptoms of PTSD is avoidance. And the more someone avoids developing a healthy coping approach to the trauma, the more their beliefs about the impact of the trauma continue. As Tim points out, This dynamic can be even more impactful among reservists, many of whom were never employed in direct combat roles, but suffered combat trauma nonetheless. And because of the terms of their service, they were expected to return seamlessly to their civilian jobs. So that was that was that was the the experience, you know, and what you see on television is not the way it is out there. No. You know, not at all. It's a lot of downtime. Yeah. And then there's this flurry of activity. And, you know, I I remember the second night I was there at Camp Integrity walking into what we called the Jock, the Joint Operations Center. And it was this big room where the two stars sat with this staff. And every night we had the uh, the battle update brief. And that's when people would update the two star about you know, the high value targets that were captured or killed and any missions and this, that, and the other. And I remember sitting in that room the second day I showed up at Camp Integrity and watching in real time a drone attack. Mm-hmm. And the two star was approving it. And I just remember sitting there and the guy that took me in there for the first time is like, check this out. 
he goes, this is really cool. Like he was excited. Yeah. I'm like, well, what's going on? He goes, just, just watch. And I just remember seeing these two guys on a dirt bike, some mountain somewhere in Afghanistan. And I hear all the radio chatter and I'm like, oh crap, is this what I think yeah. is going to happen? Yeah. And then, you know, our missiles had a camera. So as they got closer to the target, you the target could hear the missile they would always turn around and look straight at the missile a second before impact wow and you would see the pink mist yeah. you know and I, I don't know even now looking back years and i saw so many of those that's just so different from video like that yeah. was real life those you two know? guys are gone gone yeah. you yeah. know in an instant yeah and it, it's, it's just just one thing that sticks out of my mind you yeah know? and and it, it was just an incredible life-changing experience on so many levels. And, you know, just, just to, to see firsthand the the problems that take place with these chai boys, you know, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've heard about the right. chai boys yep. and, the, and what happens there. And it's just heartbreaking. It's just yeah. a heartbreaking country all the way. Yeah. Down. Well, why don't you explain that a little bit? It's something yeah. that Americans don't hear about for whatever reason. The media that covered the war, I guess, had a unofficial deal in order to get access with the Department of Defense that they wouldn't report on it. But, you know, there was a book, I believe it's called The Kite Runner. Yes. Years ago. Yep. Uh, bestseller. And I would encourage your listeners to go back and read it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Book. Yeah. But it touches on that dark side of Afghan culture. Yeah. And essentially what it is is that the wealthier village elders or the leaders in a community. So Afghanistan doesn't believe in, obviously, premarital sex or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. But in their mind, it's okay to purchase a young boy from a poor family, have him dress up as a girl, wear makeup. These are young boys, the ages 12, 13, 14 years old. And they were the ones that would serve the tea and food mm -hmm. in these settings. But essentially, these were boys who were owned by important elders and they were raped. I mean, that's what happened. And in their mind, they justified it because they weren't having sex with a woman. It was okay to violate a young boy. And when I first saw this, I remember the first time I went to one of these shuras and I saw this young boy, clearly it was a boy, but dressed like a girl with makeup. I mean, I was sick to my stomach yeah. when they told me, and these are guys, these were Afghans who we would work with. No, it's participating. The thing is, is that it's everywhere. It's pervasive, right? Throughout it, the entire, it's not it's not restricted to a certain province no, or a certain region No, and it's not something that you see occasionally. It's, it's everywhere. everywhere. It's just accepted practice. Everywhere. And the Taliban does it as much as anybody else. Yeah, I had a friend who was, uh, he was training the Afghan uh, National Army. He was one of the first trainers to go in. And uh, they, would, they would get these guys in and they'd appoint like a sergeant or something like that. And uh, at a certain point, somebody came to him and he said, hey, when you tell the sergeant to discipline somebody, do you know what they're doing? And he was like, well, I assume they're giving them like latrine, latrine duty or telling them to 
clean up the garbage? And he goes, no, they're sodomizing them. That's what they do. And he was like, oh, my God. Like, you know, that that can't be. And he goes, yeah, you know, go talk to them. You got to right. tell them. And it, he went and he spoke to them. He lined up his, like, six sergeants. And he says, hey, guys, you can't do that anymore. And they were like, well, that's the way we do right. things here. Like, what's the big deal? In a country that claims to be so religious, it was widespread knowledge that on Thursdays, that's when the boys, would, the men would get together and, you know, you get together with your friends and you go out and have a drink, you know, after work, happy hour. Yeah. Well, their Thursdays were reserved for them to let out some steam, so yeah. to speak, outside of their marriage. And, and the only reason I bring it up is just because it's, it's this contrast that exists in that society, that culture, and it's perfectly accept. Like it's of course it happens. It's yeah, acceptable. it's the way they do things. Yeah. the way they've been doing things, and we're not going to change it. No, but the thing is, is that what Americans don't understand, and which isn't explained to them by the media, is that when you go into these countries, it is so different. The, the people, the, their history, their experience. You know, we talk about their countries in our terms. They don't see it that way at all. No. Well, that and that's that that speaks to, and I'm sure you've encountered this too. You know, um, we're so insular here in the United States. You know, we think the world revolves around us. And yeah. We value and judge things from a material perspective. And we just assume that if you're poor, you're miserable and unhappy. And what I found in traveling around the world is that, man, I, I've, you know, I've met families and young kids who yeah. are just the happiest yep. children on the face of the planet living in dirt huts. And how do you process that as an American? It's just so contrary to everything. Well, in we fact, know. some of the happiest people I've ever met are you know living out in the jungle in a hut or uh you know all in all different places in the world perfectly happy they could care less they have no tv no radio right you know running water uh they grow their own plants they hunt perfectly happy so let's jump forward to you know when we suddenly pulled out of afghanistan um, what what was that like for you? Because you you know you had met made re- friendships there. Sure. You know I had a lot of friends who were were Terps interpreters and you know just you know regular Afghans who work for N, you know NGOs and places like that. Great people, like highly intelligent. And suddenly you're going like, well, what the hell's going to happen to them? Does anybody care? And I'm sure it was like a hundred times that for you. Oh my God! I mean it 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 messed me up. I mean, I, it, it brought up so many feelings and emotions. Um, my family will tell you that I, I had a one or two week period there where, man, I was just really messed up. I had to reach out to my therapist and kind of talk it through. And I know it sounds all cheesy, but I wrote a letter to myself and, you know, just, I had to figure out how to process it. And the great thing about it, and I'll answer your question, but the great thing about it is that. I remember, post, I remember posting something on LinkedIn openly. I wrote something. And I just remember a lot of my friends who I served with 
we were just all looking out for it. just people I hadn't talked to in years, yeah. like sending a text or an email. Hey, you good? Hey, man, you good? You want to talk? I'm because everybody was going through the same same thing. thing. Yeah, same. It didn't matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, whether you supported Biden's decision or you were dead set against the way he did it. Everybody was experiencing the same thing because at that moment, it be, before the chaos ensued. I remember a friend of mine from business school hit me up and he asked me for my thoughts and I just happened to be looking at some old photos of Kabul and a few photos in particular flying over the green zone and looking at the main road, the airport road that leads from the green zone, the U.S. Embassy straight, it's a straight shot about a mile to Kabul International. And I remember telling my buddy, I'm and I circled it with my phone on my iPhone and I edited the photos and I said, dude, watch what happens. You see this road and you see these gates up here. This is where it's about to go down and yeah. it's going to get ugly. And Ralph, sure enough, the Abbey gate, that main road, like it, it just unfolded. But, but to answer your question, it was tough because I thought I had been cool with my whole experience, but all these emotions started to flood back in. All I could think about was the faces of every local Afghan I had ever met or worked with, from the interpreters to the to the soldiers, the officers, to our cooks in the DFAC in our dining mm-hmm. facility, to the cleaning crews that would clean our rooms. Like every local I could think of came to mind and it was just this fear like what happened to them and their families are they alive were they massacred did they did the taliban just go because the taliban knew who was working with us of course were they dragged out of their homes were their daughters raped and killed like you know the worst thought that could flood a mind flooded my mind and i just remember being glued to the television 24 7 i couldn't work and i was just glued to the TV set and it was just really tough to process because I think we should have been out years prior, you know, and Biden and the DOD didn't exactly, it's not the way I would have done it, but they did it. They stuck to their promise of getting out of Afghanistan, but it should have taken place years prior. As Tim points out, The reasons for the U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan changed over time and were never adequately explained to the public. After the devastating events of 9-11, we went into Afghanistan to find and defeat the al-Qaeda terrorists who had planned and executed the attacks and overthrow the Taliban government that harbored them. This was largely accomplished by December 2001 with the help of the Northern Alliance, which was made up primarily of Tajik and Uzbek tribesmen. In early 2003, U.S. attention shifted to Iraq, allowing the Taliban to retrench in the southern part of Afghanistan and among the country's majority tribe, the Pashtuns. Five years later, when U.S. attention shifted back to Afghanistan, the Taliban had reestablished its control over a good half of the country and was challenging the U.S.-backed government in Kabul. Instead of trying to make peace and exit the country gracefully, 
We increased our involvement and essentially took sides in a tribal war in a country we never fully understood. Like Tim says, it was inevitable that our effort would fail. What's tragic and so very sad is the terrible toll of lives that were lost in the process. Yeah. And they knew that the Karzai family and some of oh, the other were so families corrupt. were yeah. just so corrupt. And, you know, the, the Karzai family in particular, I remember they, their fa- his family members had mansions yeah. on the hillside overlooking Camp Integrity because yeah. that was considered a fairly safe part of Kabul. And it was, it was, these were, these were built with taxpayer dollars. You look at the president, uh, I can't think of him, but the last president who fled, um, when we pulled out, you know, he's now living in a, a beautiful palatial villa in Dubai. And apparently he, you know, shipped out $300 million in an aircraft before he fled. Like this is our money. I know, you know, no, we throw money around. I mean, the money we spend in Afghanistan, all the bases we built, are the billions and you know airstrips all over the country. Oh, man, I can't tell you. I mean, we we visited bases that we built that were going to house the Afghan National Army or train their special forces. I mean, these were huge campuses where we spent, you know, because of course everything costs with contractors. You know, they win a contract and they're going to charge the U.S. government ten times what it would cost, and these places stood empty. Like they were never going to house people there. You know, we built Camp Alpha at uh, Bagram Air Base where this was going to be the headquarters for special operations. And I remember going up there a couple of nights and spending the night in these new dorms that we built. I mean, this place was unbelievable. I mean, just uh, the rec rooms. And I mean, we spent tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of dollars on just camp alpha new camp alpha yeah we never moved in there brand new facilities and it looks like a beautiful state-of-the-art junior college campus wow inside a bagram air base wow and this is much deeper than yeah it's much republican democrat trump versus biden versus obama like oh yeah yeah you know it's none of that and and if you go against the military industrial complex then you're not a patriot you're you're against the troops. You're against the veterans. You know, you're yeah. you're a you're a, a red diaper doper baby, a right, commie, because right. you know you don't want to spend money to take care of our our military. Like it's BS. I mean, it's anybody BS. who wears the uniform knows there's so much waste in the Department of Defense. Like you could cut the budget by twenty percent overnight, and if you force the DoD to operate like the private sector, we wouldn't skip a beat. I would argue that we would actually have a more lethal military if they were to incorporate private sector practice. But yeah, it's just it, it was a, it was an interesting experience, and you know, I my hat is off to all of the reservists and the guard members who are often overlooked. You know, who aren't professional soldiers or sailors, but you know, when 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 their name was called, they they packed up their gear, they yeah. left their families. They did their they part. Put their lives on the line. Put their yeah. lives on the line, even if they weren't you know, silver just, star trigger yeah. pullers. They yeah. did what they were asked to do, yeah. and I hope that history will be kind to yes. us and recognize the contributions, not only those who served, but their families who were left behind. Because yeah. I've always said it that the people that pay the biggest 
price are the family members, the kids, the parents, the the spouses who have to hold down the fort, you know, and, and, and help heal the psychological wounds. Absolutely. And they don't have the safety net or the, the network that active duty spouses have, um, where they can go on base and there's just this community people who are used to living this way you don't have that on the guard on the reserve side you've had over the last 20 years with these two wars hundreds of thousands of families that have had to figure this out on their own and have yeah. paid a tremendous price of course um and sacrificed a lot yeah and i hope history is kind to us you know it's uh i'm glad i served um the, the contrast from what I left and what I jumped into in Afghanistan was so extreme. And uh, I'm sure it's that experience has made you a richer I like intellectually to, and spiritually, right? I think so. Yeah. I think I think that it's it's helped me to grow quite a bit, you know, and recognize you know, mistakes made in the past and and come to value life. Yeah. much more so than ever before. Yes. You know, life is short. And and don't be afraid to ask for help to the listeners out there. You know, if there was any part of my story that resonates with you, you don't have PTSD is not reserved for the heroic trigger pullers kicking down doors, mm-hmm. shooting people. Mm-hmm. Everybody can experience and mm-hmm. you probably did. You has it been recognized yet but get help talk yep. to someone you know it, the resources are the, the amount of resources that are available today it's never been as deep and wide in yeah. terms of what's available to our servicemen and women who have served in the middle east yeah. so take advantage of it despite everything he's been through tim still serves proudly as a lieutenant commander in the naval reserves he still trains every month and he's ready to take a break from his lucrative financial services job and deploy again if called. As someone who suffered from PTSD himself, he urges anyone suffering from psychological trauma, whether it's caused by a car accident or being in combat, to not be ashamed to seek help, to understand that you don't have to live in the shell of pain, depression, fear, and anxiety forever and that it's never too late to heal and mend broken relationships. We thank Tim for representing all the reservists who bravely serve our country, and we thank him for his service and honesty in reporting what he witnessed in Afghanistan. We're proud and honored to call Tim Sanchez today's hero behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our producers are Frank Hobbs, Ralph Pizzullo, and Apex Media. If you haven't already, please download, review, and subscribe, and check out some of our past episodes, such as the epic Battle of Mirbat and World War II's most infamous survival story. And don't forget to tune into the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines.